by. Everybody say apostolic. Pentecostal is an experience. We thank God for that. Apostolic includes Pentecostal, but it's more. Apostolic is a lifestyle. Apostolic encompasses the Pentecostal experience, but apostolic is doctrine. Apostolic is lifestyle. Apostolic is a whole system of belief and experience that guides us. And tonight I want to talk to you about apostolic ethics. Ethics. If any group of people should be ethical people in their jobs, in their business dealings, in their interaction with each other, and in our interaction with the world, if any group of people should be ethical, it should be the apostolic people. Now, if you think this isn't an apostolic enough subject, hang on for a few minutes. And if you think it's not inspirational enough, come back Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday morning, Sunday night. You're going to be inspired until your head blows up. So tonight is Bible study. Lord Jesus, help us tonight, convict us, convince us, transform us, we pray, through your word. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. You may be seated. When you get there, would you spin around? If you got anybody besides the person you came with that's sitting next to you, shake their hand. Maybe lean over the pew and tell them you're glad to be in Bible study with them tonight. What a privilege it is to be here in the house of God with the people of God. The term ethics is defined as a system of moral principles or values that results in rules of conduct that are followed by a group or an individual. Our modern term ethics comes from the Greek word ethikos, and that was first used by a man named Aristotle about three, four hundred years before Jesus. Aristotle was a philosopher, of course, and he was trying to uh, make an attempt to understand good and moral living. Now, the word he used that has given us our modern word ethics, ethikos, doesn't even appear in the New Testament, but its root word, ethos, does, and we get ethos or ethics kind of from that. And that word refers to the habits or the customs of people, and that's what Aristotle studied. That's where he tried to connect the dots. He tried to show that our customs and our habitual way of living needed some justification. In other words, here was his premise. There has to be a reason, a good reason, that makes some behaviors right and other behaviors wrong. What is that reason? And to him, that was found in the underlying character of the individuals or the society. Now, unfortunately, although his ideas were familiar to all educated people who lived in the first century Roman world, although his ideas were familiar, his ideas fell apart a little bit. And here's why. Because as a society begins to degrade and degenerate and sin enters in, now who knows what's right or what's wrong? And we live in a very similar time to what Aristotle lived in when our society has redefined what is wrong, what is right, what is good, what is evil, and what should be tolerated and what should not be tolerated. Is there anybody that joins me in having lived long enough to see it flip backwards? And what used to not be tolerated is now celebrated. And what used to be celebrated is now no longer tolerated. 
And see, that's where ethics fails us if we base it just on uh, the goodness or the character of individuals or society. That's where Aristotle and where contemporary society go astray in trying to define good principles and values and conduct and behavior and character because they don't have any underlying moral authority to make those judgments. So when a society changes and, and the mores of a culture change, then everything goes upside down. This is where Christians are different. We have a basis for our moral authority. We have a basis for our values. We have a basis for our behavior and our judgments, and that is the word of God. You could literally say it this way. When you're apostolic, culture doesn't define your ethics. God defines your ethics. Now, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 19, there's this odd little verse. Israel says, Moses, you speak with us, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And I, I mention that just for this reason. It's pretty easy to discount and discard what a man speaks to you. And sometimes we can say, well, pastor, you speak to us because we can ignore you. You're, you're just a guy like us. But if God ever speaks to us, you can't ignore that. You have to deal with that. And I'm praying that God speaks to us on some of these issues. My theme scripture, my text, if you will, for tonight is 2 Corinthians 6 verse 3. Giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. If you think that's just talking about pastors, you need to read that book, 2 Corinthians, again, because everybody has a ministry. We're all able ministers of the New Testament. And the way it works is we're not to give offense in anything. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You don't call all the shots in your life anymore. If you were a servant of Jesus Christ, he calls the shots and we follow his directives from his word. So you don't have a right to say, well, I, I'll just do what I want. You lost that right when Jesus saved you because you now have a Lord and a master, not just somebody that bailed you out. If anybody should be ethical, if anybody should have morals, if anybody should have principles, if anybody should behave well and be a blessing in culture, it should be Christians. They should be the most ethical neighbors and employees found anywhere. Years ago, I saw a little denominational booklet. It had no words in it except on the front, and it basically said the plan of salvation. And inside, all they had were colored pages. There was a, a black page, a white page, a red page, uh, and all of these pages. And that was how they used this little track to explain the gospel. Uh, black was the color of sin. White was the color of God's holiness. They never mixed. But red was the color of blood, and it saved people and cleansed people. And so I, I kind of got this idea from that little booklet. And so tonight, the ushers have passed you a, a little booklet, and it's the little handbook of, of apostolic ethics. And I want to take the whole color approach, if you would. And the very first color we come to in the booklet is the color white, which is the color of holiness. White is the color of holiness, and it speaks to us of our integrity as individuals. First Peter chapter 1 and verse 15 says, but as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Paul wrote to Timothy, 
And that young man that was being trained and mentored by Paul, he said this, Timothy, let no man despise thy youth, but you be an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, and in purity. Timothy, I want you to be an example of the believers. Notice the word that is used in both of those verses. It's the word conversation. That word in the Greek language is anastrophe. And it means your behavior, your conduct, your lifestyle, your values. All of the things that that form how you are as a person and how you interact with everybody else. Now there is no word, uh, ethikos, which gives us ethics. That word isn't in the New Testament. But let me tell you what word is in the New Testament. Anastrophe, your conversation. Conversation isn't just your talk. Conversation is all the ways in which your life converses and connects and intersects with everybody else's life. When New Testament writers want to talk about our ethics, they use that word, conversation. Anastrophe, your behavior, your lifestyle, and your values. And uh, white is the color of purity and, and, and holiness. And ethics, folks, are like holiness. Integrity is like holiness. When you have integrity, integrity and integer come from the same root. You're, you're whole, you're one. What we see on the outside is what's really going on on the inside. There's no double life. There's no double talk. There's not a hidden secret agenda or a hidden secret life. You have integrity. It's pure. It's holy. And ethics are like holiness. We know this from teaching and studying on the subject of holiness. That holiness begins on the inside and then ultimately affects the outside. Ethics or integrity is the same. It begins on the inside and then ultimately affects your relationship with other people on the outside. Now there's this dumb little debate in current Christian circles about holiness and they actually are dumb enough to have this debate. Well, which is more important, internal holiness or outside holiness? What's more important, what's on the inside of your heart or what's on the outside, the way you act and dress and live? And That is one dumb discussion. And here's why it's dumb. Because your body... Your internal organs, let's give them the point. Let's concede the point. Your internal organs, your heart and your lungs are more important than your external organs, your eyes and your ears. But just because your eyes and your ears are less important doesn't mean you want to go through life without them. In a healthy body, you have both internal organs that function well and external organs that function well. And if you're going to live a holy life, you have internal holiness that functions well and you have external holiness that functions well. It's part of being a healthy body. Integrity is the same thing. It's not enough to say, well, I'm really a person of integrity on the inside, but I don't act that much, that same way uh, much on the outside. You can't do that. White is the color of holiness. It speaks of our integrity. The next color in your little booklet is the color black, which of course is the color of sin symbolically. And there's an odd word I've put in your handout because it's very important to me. Philippians chapter one, Paul writes from a Roman jail cell. He's in prison and he did nothing to deserve that. He's in prison because of other people accusing him. 
And then to add insult to injury, while Paul is in prison, there's a bunch of charlatans, there's a bunch of false brethren that pile on and they think, oh good, Paul's in prison, he's out of the way. Now my ministry can excel because Paul's locked up in prison. And they're preaching because Paul can't preach. And they're having crusades because Paul can't have crusades. And they're pastoring churches because Paul can't pastor churches. And they literally are so evil that, that they think, well, Paul's out of the way. Now my ministry can excel. It's unbelievable. But you know what's even more unbelievable than their attitude is Paul's attitude. This is amazing. This is written from a jail cell. He said, what then? Notwithstanding every way, whether they're preaching in pretense, whether they're total charlatans and frauds and fakers, or whether they're preaching in truth, they're good brethren, they're apostolic to the core. Either way, Christ is preached. Paul is in prison, and these guys are rejoicing about it, and meanwhile, he's praying for them and hoping that they have good meetings and pastor great churches, because Christ is preached, and therein I do rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. I'm just happy that Jesus is being preached. Even if sometimes Jesus is preached by people that have flaws and faults, even if Jesus is sometimes preached by people that have mistreated me, even if Jesus is sometimes preached, oh, oh, by people I don't even like. Paul said, I'm gonna rejoice even though I don't like what they're doing. I'm gonna rejoice that Jesus Christ is being preached. That's amazing. Well, that's an attitude. Romans 16, verse nine, he says to the people in Rome, he said, yet I would have you to be wise unto that which is good. I'd like you to know a whole lot about good things. I'd like you to know a whole lot of good reports. If you're gonna know some gossip, know some good gossip. I'd like you to be wise concerning things that are good. If you're gonna be wise about media, I'd like you to be wise about good media. If you're going to be wise about culture, I'd like you to be wise about the good things in your culture. And I'd like you to be simple. That means exactly what you thought it did. I'd like you to be dumb. I'd like you to be naive. I'd like you to be simple concerning evil. You know, one of the plagues of the modern church is we got a lot of people that know every kind of sinful celebrity and they know every kind of activity and they can get the, the meaning of every double-minded, double-edged joke. They got it all. They're wise concerning evil and they're dumb as a fence post concerning good. Paul said, you need to reverse that and do it quickly. You need to be smart and sharp and wise. You need to be tuned in to what is good and you need to be dumb and simple and a little bit naive. And if the world thinks you're naive, good, you're doing this right. You don't need to be up on every filthy, perverted joke that's floating around the office. You don't need to be up on every sinful celebrity and what they upended their life into this week. You don't need to know that. You're an apostolic and this is part of apostolic ethics. This is the way we live. And so the word here is innocence. I don't need that blackness in my heart. I don't need that evil in my heart. I don't need all that junk and trash in my heart. I want to be innocent. Nobody wants to be innocent anymore. Everybody wants to be 
kind of cool and couth and know everything that's going on. Not Paul. He said, I'd like you to be wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. I wrote this statement down months and months ago. It encapsulates, I think, where I try to be, what I try to live like. Leadership experts tell us that vision leaks. If you don't keep harping on vision, it just leaks out of a church, out of an organization, out of a business. But here's what leaks way worse than vision. Innocence leaks. Innocence leaks out of our lives. The world's always trying to beat a path into our heart and our mind. And I do not want to be a Christian long enough to become hardened to what we do or calloused to the move of God in a service. As a pastor, I don't want to preach sermons so long that I feel like we can push a couple of buttons and pull a couple of rabbits out of the hat and hit a couple of cliches and we can manage and manipulate the presence of God because we can't. It is a rare privilege when the presence of Jesus comes rushing into a sanctuary like it did tonight. That is not something we manufacture. That is not something we hype up or pull down or create. That is God moving among us people. I don't want to be a Pentecostal long enough to feel like I can be cynical about my brethren and skeptical concerning all the great reports we get from our missionaries and our evangelists. I'm not skeptical about those reports. I've had the honor, the rare privilege of standing in some of those meetings and watching the Holy Ghost just kind of dump out like a waterfall, like Niagara Falls on a crowd of tens of thousands of people. I've had a chance to be there. They're not making that up when they send those reports. That's not exaggerated or stretched. Most of the time, they've agonized over what they present to North America because they don't want us to disbelieve it. I am not cynical. I am not skeptical. I am rejoicing at what God is doing. I want to be wise concerning things that are good. I want to be innocent concerning the work of God. And one more thing before we move on. There are all kinds of giftings in the body of Christ. And just because you're not anointed like I'm anointed or I'm not gifted like you're gifted doesn't mean we discard each other. Just because you're not anointed like me doesn't mean you're not anointed. And just because I'm not gifted by God like you doesn't mean I'm not gifted by God. We need to grow up and get over this. We are a body and we function together. And God puts in the body apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. You know what else he puts in the body? Those that are called to be saints. It is not a downer to be called to be a saint. It is not less than to be called to be a saint. I just read it in 1 Corinthians this afternoon. Called to be saints. If you're called to be a saint, don't stoop to be the prime minister of Canada. Don't stoop to be the president of the United States. You are called to be a saint. This is a body and we're all valuable. Not skeptical about you. And I think I just lied because I got one more thing to say before we move on. Furthermore, just because you and I have had a disagreement doesn't mean that God can't use you anymore because you disagreed with me. (laughs) Just because you and I had a parting of ways over some subject doesn't mean that God discarded you because I was so arrogant that I discarded you. Let's grow up and get over that foolishness. Somebody say innocence. 
We don't need that black sin creeping into our lives. We're called to be apostolic people who are ethical in our dealings with each other. You may not like this next one. Silver is the color of wealth. And I want to talk to you for just a moment about materialism because materialism can be the enemy of your ethics as a Christian. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, no man, no man, not you. Even though you're specially gifted and very mature and you know a lot of the Bible, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. Now the next phrase should say, you can't serve God and the devil. But it doesn't say that. That's too obvious. We'd see that coming 25 miles away. Here's the principle. You can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and materialism. Your Bible, the one that you carry to church or have on your phone, your Bible devotes twice as many verses to money as it does to faith and prayer combined. 2,350 verses about money. Jesus, your Lord, said more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. Jesus spent 15% of all of his recorded words talking about money. He said more about money than any other subject. Because money and possessions have the greatest potential to shove him out of his place as the Lord of your life. Not the devil, that's too obvious. You'd see that coming and run. No money and possessions. When you get focused on wealth, when you get focused on materialism, when that becomes some kind of a motivation for you, you can mess up everything. I've seen people take promotions and lose out with God. I've seen people move away where there's no good church and lose their family and their salvation. I've seen people that get uh, some kind of business idea and they lose out with God. I've seen it all over 35 years and it's treacherous and it sneaks up on them. Not one of them intended to lose out with God. But Jeremiah said, your heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Not you, not me, only God. Your heart is deceitful. You can't know what's in there. And that's why the psalmist is always praying, God, search my heart. God, search my heart. We could use a revival of that in the 21st century. God, search my heart. I'm so busy sometimes trying to cover up what's in my heart so all of you will think I'm fine and good and everything's okay. But the psalmist, he kept praying, God, you search my heart because only you know what's in there. While I can't know my heart, and I can't figure out what's in there without asking God's help. I can do this. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, you back up three verses, he said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your heart follows your treasure wherever your treasure is. So you can control your heart. You can't even know what's in your heart, but you can control your heart by where you put your treasure. It's amazing. Your heart follows your treasure. And, and so 
When you give to something, when you invest in something, your heart goes there. If you invest in your business, your heart's going to be all preoccupied with your business. If you invest in your retirement, your heart's going to be preoccupied with the retirement. You invest in your home and your car and your nice thing and whatever it is, your heart is going to go there because your heart is fixated on where your treasure has been placed. And you know that. If you just bought something new, it could be a new car or it could be a new phone, but you worry about that. You look suspiciously at anybody that picks it up or gets too close because they might scratch it. And it goes that way until you drop it or crash it. And then it doesn't matter anymore. Your heart follows your treasure. Let me tell you something wonderful about the apostolic church. When you put your treasure in missions, your heart goes into missions. When you put your treasure in God's kingdom, your heart goes in God's kingdom. When you put your treasure in your church, your heart gets wrapped up in your church. When you invest in ministries and an evangelist comes by and you bless him with something, your heart goes there. It's amazing. My heart's stuck right here in my chest and I can't even figure out what's in it. The Bible says that, but you know where my heart was on Sunday? It was over in the Philippines with Nick Mahaney because this church rallied and put some money into that man and hundreds received the Holy Ghost because of what he did on the weekend. And my heart was there and your heart was there. Your heart follows your treasure. There are three levels of giving according to many of the surveys that have been done of the North American church. See, the Bible refers to giving according to your ability and giving more than your ability. What the Bible doesn't refer to is giving less than your ability. But here's how the statistics pan out with North American Christians. 96% of Christians in North America give less than their ability to give. They could give more easily, wouldn't even make a dent in anything. 96% of them give in that category that is not even biblical, less than their ability. According to the statistics, 3% of Christians give according to their ability. They give uh, as, as God has prospered and they give and it, it, it doesn't kill them, it doesn't mess them up. They're giving according to their ability. And only 1% of Christians give beyond their ability, which is another category the Bible talks about. Giving beyond their ability. What's giving beyond your ability? It's given when it doesn't make sense. It's given when you really don't have it. It's giving when it pinches and stretches you. It's giving when, when you could use that money for something else and everybody would probably tell you you should, but you feel like, oh no, I gotta invest in the kingdom of God and you do and then God comes through miraculously and makes up the gap. I think I'm still preaching in an apostolic church on a Wednesday night in September 2019, I think I'm still, I'm already in next year. It sounds so much easier, 2020, but we're not there yet. Somebody preached something on 2020 vision when we open up the year, Pastor Jack. I think I'm still preaching to an apostolic church in September 2019. I, I think I'm still preaching to people that understand that if I invest in the kingdom of God even beyond my ability to give, God is gonna come through and make that up to me. You are seated among some people that have seen some financial miracles over the years because they gave beyond or above their ability to give. 
I'm not pausing because I lost my place. I'm just pausing to let the uncomfortable feelings sink in just for a moment. We need to be convicted about that. Because what we think is according to our ability, we are in the top 10% easily of the wealthiest people in the whole world. Your brothers and sisters in Pakistan and India and Philippines and all over, they don't have what you have. They don't have what I have. And yet they give and they sacrifice. We do wonderfully well. We thank God for this church. We don't have a problem with giving, so we're not taking an offering tonight. We're not doing pledges. I'm not here to shame or condemn or guilt or nag anybody. But I'm just telling you, we're not too far off if the statistics say only 1% of North American Christians give beyond their ability to give. That's got to affect somebody here. Don't let the devil rob you of your blessing of miraculous provision because you think you got to pay for some possession before you give into the work of God. Next color in your handout is green. Green is the color of spring. It's the color of growth. It's the color of hope. New life coming back. Green. And this speaks to me of a mindset that Christians should have. A mindset of hope. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Love beareth all things. It believeth all things. It hopeth all things. It endureth all things. An ethical mindset, an apostolic ethical mindset, believes the best about people. And it hopes for the best in all situations until proven otherwise. Basic human psychology tells me that when you and I do the very same thing, very same thing, I am going to attribute the worst possible motives to you and the best possible motives to me. And we're doing exactly the same thing. Let, let me show you how that works. If, if your kids are messing up, that's because you didn't raise them right. But if my kids are messing up, that's because the devil's attacking my home. Pastors do this to each other, unfortunately. If, if, if your church has some people that don't look apostolic, that's because you've left the faith, denied the faith, you're, you're turning into some false doctrine, you're walking away from truth. But if our church has people that don't, have a holiness standard yet is because we're reaching the lost. We got new babies and new converts. You see how that works? I can attribute the worst possible motive to somebody else while I'm thinking the best possible motive about me. Now, where's that? What's that have to do with me, pastor? Oh, it has a lot. The tendency of human nature to misinterpret each other's motives can be dangerous and divisive in a local church. And Paul calls us to a higher standard of ethics. He says, don't you give offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, it's not in your little booklet. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, 22, he says, prove all things. Don't be dumb. You can know when somebody's a fraud or a charlatan. Prove all things. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from all appearance of evil. 
We're not dumb. We understand that people can have wrong motives and people can make horrible decisions. But until we know for a fact that they're wrong, we're going to believe the best about them. Until we know for a fact that it's messed up permanently, we're going to try to hope for the best till the very last possible moment. That's an apostolic ethic. No, we don't cover up wrongdoing, but here's what we do. Proverbs 17, verse 9. He that covereth a transgression seeketh love, but the one that repeats a matter, he separates very friends. The writer of Proverbs said, we don't cover up stuff, but we do cover sin. We do cover transgression. That's not covering it up, that's covering it. In other words, we don't talk about it all over town. We don't spread the news that somebody failed all over Facebook. We don't get on social media or our texting or our phones and say, did you hear? The next time somebody says to you, did you hear? You know what they should see next? Your heels. That's what they should see next as you run away. Did you hear? Thank you, students, because the church didn't clap for that. Pastor Jack clapped for that, but the church still hasn't clapped for that, just so we notice. There we go. That's called guilt. We don't cover up people's sins, but love covers a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean it's covering it up. It means we're not going to talk about it and humiliate people and embarrass people. Because the last thing they need is a mountain of shattered shards of glass to crawl over when they finally repent and come back to church. They don't need to think that you hate them. They need to know that you love them. So we don't talk about all the failures and the messes that people make. We leave them alone and we pray for them. That's apostolic. It's a mindset of hope. That this isn't the end of them. That this isn't the last we're going to see of them. Hope says we're going to see them back at an altar. We're going to see them back on a platform. We're going to see them with their hands lifted and tears running down their face. So if you think we're going to kick them out and dismiss them and talk about them all over town, that's a quick way to get rebuked by one of the pastors here. Hope. Somebody say hope. Romans 5, Paul said, tribulation. See, if you've ever had somebody unjustly criticize you, if you've ever had somebody attack your character, tribulation works patience in you, and patience works some experience, and experience works hope. You experience enough life and enough negativity and enough people doing you wrong, you won't be wanting to do anybody else wrong. And that kind of hope maketh not ashamed. Uh... Let's go a little further. Gold is the color, of course, of the golden rule. And this speaks to us of mutuality, that we treat one another as we would want to be treated. Matthew 7, therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, you do even so to them. That is the law and the prophets. Jesus said that one concept sums up the entire Old Testament. Paul, he amplifies it a little bit in Romans 12. He said, be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love in honor, preferring one another. If we could just practice the golden rule taught by Jesus, listen, that would eliminate all relationship conflicts, period, end of story. 
Jesus said the entire Old Testament hangs on that one principle. And Paul's principle of in honor preferring one another, that would solve all kinds of conflicts if we only practiced it. You see, when I prefer you over me, when I do to you what I would have you do to me, that means you get what you want and I don't always get what I want. That's in honor preferring one another. That one little principle will bless your marriage, your family, your friendships, your ministry, whatever. But the human ego is so treacherous, we can make a thousand excuses for our behavior. If I truly honor and prefer you above me, then I will always keep confidential what you share with me in confidence. I will build my ministry without tearing down your ministry. If I honor and prefer you over me, I will not compete with you for some stupid position somewhere. If I honor you above me, I will not accept a negative report about you without talking to you. It will not happen. Just because somebody said it about you doesn't make it true in my books. I'm going to check it out with you. If I honor and prefer you above me, I won't interact with your friends and colleagues without building you up. Let's move on. Red is the color of blood, of course. We sang about it earlier tonight, the precious blood of Jesus, and it speaks to us of mercy. Romans chapter 14, verse 13. Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. Could we please stop judging one another? If you want something to judge, Paul said, here's something you can judge. Look in your mirror and make sure you're not putting a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in your brother's way. If you want something to judge, judge yourself. If you want something to judge, judge your actions, not somebody else's. Paul begs the church in Ephesus, he said, be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, and we're human, so we're going to mess up. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to chafe each other and hurt each other. But forgive one another. Not trying to be whatever. Forgive one another for God's sake, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. If you're going to make a mistake with people, make that mistake by being too merciful and not too judgmental. Will people sometimes take advantage of that? Oh, yeah. Ask any pastor. They can tell you. But God keeps good records. And God will look after you and your little reputation if you'll look after his people. My pastor constantly says to me, he deals with so many people that have fallen, fractured, messed up, backslidden, and he's trying to restore them. He constantly says to me, Raymond, what if that was your son? Or what if that was your daughter? Can you forgive people who've made horrible mistakes? Maybe the answer to that's found in another question. Have you ever made a horrible mistake? And did God forgive you? If God forgave you, surely you can show his mercy to somebody else. That's an apostolic ethic. It's an ethic of mercy. It's an ethic that hopes for the best instead of scheming to uncover the worst. Two more things. I'm going to try to finish real quick here. Blue is the color of heaven. It speaks of our motivation in serving God. 
What's your motivation for being a church member? What's your motivation for being a Christian? What's your motivation for being involved in ministry or volunteering at your church? 1 Corinthians 3 verse 8 says, He that planteth and he that watereth were one. The pastor doesn't get more credit because God appointed him to be the one that speaks behind the pulpit. He's not greater in the eyes of God because of that. He that planteth and he that watereth were one. Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. You do what God called you to do and you're going to receive the greatest reward in heaven. Period. End of story. You don't have to do what somebody else does. But the, the celebrity culture that infects our society has made a few inroads into the church. And if we're not careful, that can lead us in the great apostolic church of the last days. It can lead us to seeing big people and little people, important people and not very important people, valuable people and people that aren't very valuable. No, you listen, no such distinction exists with God. I've preached funerals for precious little old saints that not one soul outside their little tiny community and this church family would have even known their name. Nobody at our headquarters will ever know their name. But in heaven, I believe some of those people are world famous because they prayed for their pastors and their church and their family every day of their life. The language of the New Testament is servants and masters. But today, it would be employees and bosses. That's an education. Read through some of Paul's epistles and take out the word servant, put employee. Take out the word master and put boss. It'll give you a really good course on how you should live as an apostolic on your job. Colossians, I'll just mention one passage. Chapter 3, verse 22. It's not in your handout. Colossians 3, 22 through 24. Servants, employees, obey in all things your bosses according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers. What's that mean? Don't just work hard when they're looking. Don't just do it when you're being supervised. But in singleness of heart, fearing God. Now here's the catch. And whatsoever you do, Well, all I do is sort boxes. All I do is type papers. All I do is file things. All I do is run errands for my boss. Whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Why? Because your paycheck may come from your boss, but your reward doesn't come from your boss. God is watching how you work on that job. And it blesses his kingdom and the testimony of his church when they say behind your back, not he's lazy, not she's grumpy, but they say that is the most valuable employee, that is the most pleasant employee we've ever had here. That blesses the kingdom of God. Knowing that of the Lord, Lord, you shall receive the reward of the inheritance. This is talking about your job. For you serve the Lord Christ. 
apostolic employees should be the most awesome employees in the entire city of Fredericton and province of New Brunswick because here's an apostolic ethic. I'm not just working for you. I'm working for God. Wait a minute. You never preached a crusade. I'm working for God at, at, at my job. I'm working for God at the university. I'm working for God at Walmart. I don't have to be behind a pulpit to work for God. I can reach out to somebody while I'm checking them out at the register because I'm not working for Walmart. I'm working for Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body whether it be good or bad. What's your motivation? My motivation is not an employee evaluation at the end of the month. That's not what I'm concerned about. My motivation is heaven is coming at me like a freight train. Whether I go by way of a funeral or way by, by way of the rapture, heaven is coming at me. And my concern is the evaluation that I'm going to face at the judgment seat of Christ. What's your motivation? And finally, and in conclusion, brown is the color of earth. And it speaks to us of our mortality. The psalmist said, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Teach us to number our days, God. Teach us to realize that all of us are interim pastors, interim saints, interim leaders, interim ministers. Nobody's permanent here. Everybody's gonna die or move or be replaced or something's gonna happen to you. And someday somebody else is gonna do what you're doing now. If it's a ministry, a job, whatever it is. So be sure to always work with your mortality in mind. And that says something very important to those of us that really wanna give the church and the work of God our best. Put your family high on your priority list. Put your family high on your priority list. Don't be one of those Christians. You'll never hear this from many pastors. Don't be one of those Christians that that's, that's at the church every night and your kids hardly know your name. Now, I don't think we have a problem with too many people being at the church every night, just to be clear. But don't be one of those people that you're so spiritual with all of us and your kids, they think you hate them. You're not interested in them. Don't trade the role that is unique to you. Someday, somebody else is going to stand behind this pulpit after Pastor Jack and me are both gone. Someday, somebody else is going to lead the ministry you lead in the church. Someday, somebody else is going to drive your car and have your job and live in your house. Someday. So don't trade the one role that's unique to you, and that's as the parent of your child or the husband of your wife, or the wife of your husband. Don't trade that role that only you can fulfill for something that somebody else is going to eventually do anyway. The Southern Baptist pastor from Atlanta, Andy Stanley, he said this, and I love the quote, your greatest contribution to the kingdom of God may not be something you do. It may be somebody you raise. Parents, if you can raise a godly young person that knows how to pray and marries somebody that serves God and God calls them to do something in a local church somewhere 
or calls them to be a missionary and they impact the kingdom of God, your greatest contribution might not have even been you living for God or being a preacher or being a minister or being a department head. Your greatest contribution may be somebody that right now is little and they're growing up in your house, but you're teaching them how to pray big prayers even though they're a little person. That's incredibly valuable. Parents, spouses, brothers and sisters, we need to not just be apostolic in the four walls of 71 Downing Street We need to have an apostolic ethic that remembers we've only got limited time to raise our kids. We've only got limited time to love our spouses. We've only got limited time to bless our family and teach them and train them. So remember, you need to get God and his word to teach you to number your days. Oh my, can I just have two minutes and I'll be done? Is that okay? I know we're a little bit over time. I'm I'm sorry. We're supposed to start at seven sharp and end at eight dull. Speak to somebody that there's tension in your family. There's conflict. There's spiritual battles in your home. Speak to somebody that there's backsliders in your family. In this last little scripture, I came across it just a few months ago. I don't know how I missed it reading through. Amnon, David's son, had raped Tamar, David's daughter. And then Absalom, David's son, had killed his brother in revenge. And Absalom had fled from the kingdom. And it's been three years, and David and Absalom are estranged. Absalom was dead wrong. Absalom did a great sin. Amnon's sin didn't make Absalom's sin right in the sight of God. And David and Absalom are estranged. And every day David thinks about Absalom, but he won't lift his finger to bring that boy home to the kingdom. And finally his friend Joab, who was his general but also his friend, Joab goes to a little widow widow woman in Tekoa, and he said, come here, I want you to help me with something. And he explains it all out because he knows her situation and he sends her to King David and she comes in, no Joab, just this little widow woman from Tekoa. And she walks into the palace, has an audience with the king and she tells him this story that captures David's heart. David got it, he he, he got caught a couple of times with somebody telling him a story that captured his heart. This little woman, she said, I have two boys and they got in a fight and one killed the other. My husband's been dead for years. I'm a little widow. And one son killed the other son. And then the village pounced on me and said, bring us that boy that killed his brother and we're gonna judge him. We're gonna stone him. We're gonna kill him. King David, I need your help because I'm gonna lose both my boys and I won't have anything in this earth. And David, he gets riled up. He said, you just send that person to me and I'll make sure I protect you and they will not kill your boy because your boy needs to come home. And he no sooner gets the words out of his mouth and she says, King David, can I just say one more thing? You need to bring your boy home. Your boy's estranged from you and you're willing to leave that and let that be and not raise a finger to solve it. Look at what she says. Look, look, look. 2 Samuel 14, 14. Everybody say mortality. You only got one life to live. Don't live it hating people. 
Don't live it divided from everybody. Don't, don't live it with estrangement in your heart toward everybody. Here's what she says, this little wise widow woman. She said, King David, we must needs die. We're all gonna die. And when we die, our lives are like water spilt on the ground. It can't be gathered up again. Whatever you do, whatever you decide, whoever you hate or love, whatever you act like, it's spilt on the ground. You can't fix it when you die. Neither does God respect any person. He's not changing his rules for you. But although God can't change his rules and God can't turn a sin into a righteous act, sin is sin, wrong is wrong, evil is evil. But God can devise a means that his banished be not expelled from him. Although what Absalom did was wrong, you got him dead to rights under the law. But God can devise a means. God is so merciful, so miraculous, that if you'll trust him and if you will reach out, if you'll do the hard work of swallowing your stupid pride and swallowing your dumb ego, and you'll reach out, God can devise a means to bring that banished one back to him. I speak to somebody who has a backslider in your family. I speak to somebody that there's a sinner who their sin is an affront to your righteous lifestyle. But I speak to you tonight and say, our God can devise a means to bring back a banished one to him. I believe there's a revival of backsliders in the next couple of years gonna happen all across the apostolic church. I really believe that. I hear it everywhere I go. I've heard it in preaching. I've heard it in prophecy. I've heard it in conferences. I've heard it in minister sessions. I've heard it from evangelists and pastors and people I consider to be apostles of the faith. There's going to be a revival of backsliders. Now, God can devise a means for them to get back, but here's what you got to remember you only got one life here. You're immortal. You only got one chance to do it right. So, the last thing you need to be doing is hating on them. The last thing you need to be doing is heaping more guilt on them. The last thing you need to be doing is shaming them. The last thing you need to be doing is gossiping about them. The last thing you need to be doing is looking down your nose at them. I'll tell you what you need to be doing. You need to be praying for them and you need to be reaching for them and you need to be loving them because God can devise a means that those who are right now banished from his presence, that they are not permanently expelled from him. That's apostolic. That's our ethic that nobody's too far gone. Nobody's too far down. Nobody's too far lost. Nobody's too far in sin. God can devise a means. He's so merciful and miraculous. God can devise a means to bring them back to him. That's apostolic ethics. We never give up. You thought ethics was a bunch of dumb little rules. No, ethics is a lifestyle. Ethics is an attitude. Ethics is a value system. And we've got an apostolic ethic that never gives up on lost people. Stand with me and lift your hands high in the presence of God and give Jesus praise in this room tonight. Reach out to him. We're almost finished service. I'm not gonna hold you a long time, but I just need you to reach out to God. Somebody, God wants to give you hope for that backslider in your family. Somebody, God wants to adjust your attitude a little bit tonight. God wants you to be a merciful person.
That's pretty good, but that's not, that's not where it should be and could be. I want you to lift up your prayer right now. Lift up your prayer right now. Lift up your prayer right now. God may speak a word into your spirit about what to do to go reach that person. God may speak a word into your spirit to tell you what to do to show mercy to that person. God may speak a word of hope to you. Oh my goodness. I need all my folks that love a backslider that's not serving God right now. I don't care if it's in your family or somewhere else. Lift your hand high right now. Lift your Look at that. Look at that. There's a revival that would pack this church out, floor and balcony, right there. There's a revival. Lift up your voice and let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so merciful and you are so miraculous that when we can't figure out a way, when we can't figure out a means, when it seems the sin is too far gone and the person is too angry and too rebellious and too addicted and too bound, you can devise a means that those that are banished will not be permanently expelled from your kingdom. So God, instruct us, teach us, burden us in prayer. God, help us to reach so we can have that revival of backsliders that is being prophesied all over the apostolic church. Let us see it here. Let us see it here in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. name.